pray we wrap up our study in this 15th chapter of Paul's first inspired letter to the church at Corinth. And in it, in this chapter in particular, Paul's been making an extended argument. I mean, this is the longest chapter of the letter. An argument that is rooted in the gospel reality of Christ's own death and resurrection. That's where he started. He wanted to remind them of the gospel they had already received. And now he's arguing for the physical resurrection of believers. It's a bittersweet feeling to be coming out of the chapter. And this study, like so many, has been a challenging one for me personally, as God has been working his truth down into my heart. But it's also been so encouraging to see the victory that has already been won for broken and for needy people who look to Jesus. You too can be freed from the stinging dominion of sin and of death and share in the fruits of Christ's victory. So I encourage you as I read, we're going to start reading in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, I'd say either pull it up on your phone or there's some copies of the scripture over there against the wall. I kind of like everyone to have one in front of them they can look at. And I encourage you as I read to pay attention to all the times Paul refers to a change that will happen at the resurrection, something that's going to be different. I counted at least 10 times that he refers to something that will change. You don't have to keep count, but kind of note them as, as we read. Things like in what state we will be raised, what, what victory is being accomplished in our resurrection. So and pay attention to those and what that means for us then, here and now, as I read the text aloud, starting in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the word of God. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You pray with me. Dear Father, there's much that could be said today. There's much in my heart that I would like to say today, but let me speak your words first and foremost. May we see Jesus and him alone lifted up. May we see the power of his resurrection and the hope of our resurrection and the victorious reality of it all for sinners like us. I pray that you would build up your church today by the word of truth 
so that by it you would be keeping your promise to batter against the gates of hell and fit us for life in this broken world as pilgrims and sojourners. Shape us as your children into the image of your Son, Jesus. And may you ignite the flame of our hearts to respond in faith to your voice today. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray this together. Amen. In my other life, as many of you probably know, I'm employed as a manager. It's not really my other life. I, it's still the same life. But I'm a manager of software people who are far more skillful, far smarter than I am. And one of my main responsibilities is to make sure we have the right people working on the right things, solving the right problems the right way. Oh, and doing it in time to meet the deadlines that our customers have. And one big aspect of this is to learn what motivates people. What motivates engineer A to work on his project, to stay focused on his project, to not skip steps that would impact quality down the road? And this is certainly not exclusive, this question of motivation, not exclusive to those who are in management-type roles. But it's also true in any activity that involves working with people from a manager to a teacher, from a parent to a coach, from a counselor to a peer. We all need to be thinking at some level about what motivates someone's responding to what I'm telling them. So in my realm at work, there's a broad range of motivations. Some are motivated primarily by the financial reward, either the risk of loss of losing their paycheck if they do poorly, or the hope of gain. Maybe they'll get some additional raise or promotion or bonus if they do a really good job. Some are motivated by positive affirmations, by getting um, maybe some public attention for their work. Others just by the desire to work on some interesting project, to be able to stay intellectually engaged with what they're doing. Others are motivated by a desire to help people and want to be put on projects where they're helping others and so forth. So my point is that once we know what motivates someone, we're not using it to manipulate them. We're not using it to make them do something they wouldn't want to do. That would be wrong and dishonest. But within what's reasonable to seek to get the best out of them. Think of what motivates you in your daily life. Maybe if you're in school, what motivates you to finish your homework every day? Is it what you get to do after you do your homework, maybe? Or maybe it's fear of what will happen if you go to school the next day and don't have it all done. What motivates you to keep, I don't know, the stack of dishes from piling up in the sink? What motivates you to maintain friendships with others even when things get difficult? I think these are important questions to ask when we think about why we do what we do. What, what's the underlying motivation for that? But there's a more important motivation question that relates to what we've been talking about the past weeks and now coming to the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And that, I believe, is the, the key question I'd like us to consider as we look at today's text. I'll have three points. I believe these are in your outline, and I'll also have them up on the screen as we go through them. But the key question I'd like you to think about is what motivates you to persevere in holding on to the gospel and faithfully serving Christ? What motivates you to persevere in holding on to the gospel and in faithfully serving Christ. Now, implied underneath this question 
are some assumptions. And I think they're pretty obvious. One is that life in this world is hard. And I'm not just talking about we break a sweat when we go outside or do something. But it's incredibly difficult physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then life as a Christian seeking to live out one's faith in service of our king is also at times unspeakably difficult. So we acknowledge the brokenness of the world and all that are in it, that things are not as they should be due to the sin and its effects in us and in others. We can all think of people who know, or people that we know who once professed the faith and have since fallen away to some degree or another. We don't bring them to mind in vindictive judgment, but rather in sober reflection. We know there's a trio of adversaries described in Scripture that want us to fail. The world, the flesh, and the devil. More fully, this includes the sinful systems of a fallen world, the pull of our sinful flesh, and the deceitful temptations of the devil. So what are some possible answers to this question of what motivates you to persevere in your faith? Some possible motivations are because We want others around us to believe and follow the faith. Maybe you're thinking of your kids. You want them to follow the faith, so I need to persevere for them. Or maybe you want others, maybe in your community, to see your life, see the change that God has done and be saved. Maybe we persevere because we fear what others will think of us if we don't, that we'll be seen as a quitter. Or maybe we do just because we know it's the right thing to do. Maybe it's out of fear of punishment if we don't persevere or fear of God or someone else not being pleased with us. I'm sure there are other reasons that we could and do seek to follow after Christ. And some of these I've listed may have biblical support and others clearly do not. But why do you persevere? Is there a one or two sentence summary that could summarize your motivations for it? Also, and I hope this is, this is in there, you likely intellectually affirm and would even articulate the truth that you only persevere as God gives you the strength to do so. We hold on to him because he's already and forever holding on to us. So perseverance is in large part a work the indwelling spirit does in the heart of true believers. But we also recognize there are eternal truths about God that are rooted in his character and in his redemptive work that he graciously uses to motivate us to follow and to continue. And today I believe we'll see several motivations to steadfast believing and working for Christ. So the big idea I think of this text, and I pray that we see as we unfold it, unpack it, is that motivated by the certainty of our bodily transformation through Christ's victory over sin and over death, we enter into grateful praise, we endure in gospel truth, and we excel in Christian service. Let me repeat that. Motivated by the certainty of our bodily transformation through Christ's victory over sin and death, we enter into grateful praise, we endure in gospel truth, and excel in Christian service. So Paul is going to start in today's text by finishing some of the explanation of what the form of our resurrection bodies will be. Remember, he's actually answering a question that 
he raised or maybe theoretically, maybe actually raised about what someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And as Joseph has been teaching, he's answering that question, some through analogies from the physical world, like seeds and like different kinds of animals. He's drawing comparisons between Adam and Christ and also describing in more detail the essential nature of our change. So our first point is really coming out of what he's been saying in the preceding verses. And he's going to show us that transformation is needed. Let me read those first, that first verse. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul switches again to using affectionate, familial language, both as he opens and as he closes this section. We'll see it in verse 50. We'll see it again in verse 58. This is written to brothers, which by implication includes sisters, not, not by genetic relations, not born of the same blood of the same parents, but by spiritual. He writes to those that have been brought into God's family through adoption. And in bringing this up, he's reminding them that their fundamental identity is as children of the Father. By extension, he's reminding us of our identity as family too. He has more truth that he wants to communicate, but he wants it to be received as from a brother to dear brothers and sisters. And there are two main reasons that Paul is going to give for why not only resurrection, but also the transformation of our bodies is needed. And his first reason is going to be because of our future inheritance. This is why we need to be transformed and changed because of our future inheritance. The verb he uses to inherit often refers to coming into possession of our full hope, our full eschatological end time hope, coming into possession of that. And Paul's point here is that these bodies, even with resurrection to life, can't experience all that God has promised. We need something to change about them. There's a radical incompatibility, he's saying, between the present condition of human existence, which he kind of puts under this title, flesh and blood, and the resurrected condition. We need more than just to wake up from being dead and receive our inheritance after the resurrection. Our bodies are currently unfit for possessing the kingdom with everything that that implies. It also seems that Paul is continuing the parallelism that was introduced earlier in last week's text, where if you look back in the passage in verse 42 through 44, he describes the weakness, the degeneration, the decay of our present bodies. Along with everything else in the created world, they've also been corrupted by sin. This reference to flesh and blood doesn't exclusively point out our sinful state, but it almost certainly includes that our bodies have been corrupted and are being corrupted by the effects of sin. So they are unable then to inherit. The second main reason that transformation is needed is because, as I mentioned, we are currently susceptible to decay. Paul repeats the term perishable in verse 50. This is referencing whatever experiences decay, whatever experiences corruption. Because what decays and what degenerates by currents in the stream of time cannot come into possession of that which will never pass away. This is the same word that Paul used in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians to describe the wreaths that they would use to crown the victor in their athletic games, to which over time the flowers fade 
and fall off. They begin to decay and degenerate in the same way our physical bodies will decay. We need bodies that don't decay and that will never pass away. So this will bring our bodies to match with the imperishable nature of our inheritance. But also Paul is about to reveal what has been a mystery up until this point to his hearers. Not by giving a complete picture, a complete play-by-play forecast of all of the events to come in the end times, but as an exclamation point, he starts this, Behold, to both the glory of the resurrection that was accomplished in and through Christ. So Paul is going to make clear that the transformation is received by all who put their hope in Christ, not only the dead, but the still living too. So as we look at that verse, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now don't get confused by all Paul's usage of we, the pronoun we in these verses. Paul does not seem to be arguing beyond all doubt, that he would be alive and be included in those who would be alive at Christ's return. But what he is doing is including himself and his readers in the categories referenced. So he talks specifically about two categories of people. He talks about those who will be living at the final resurrection. He talks about those who will have died prior to the resurrection. So since Christ's return will interrupt the passage of human history, There will be both living and dead believers. And to both, he says, you too will be transformed. So here's the logic of Paul's comments, which seems almost to be responding to an implied question. This is the first part of the logic. If all sleep, then all will be resurrected with transformed bodies. In other words, the death of the body precedes its resurrection. And I I think we get this relationship. But what about those who are still living at Christ's return? They're not coming out of the ground, so they're not being resurrected. So how do they get new bodies? So the kind of the the syllogism there is, if not all sleep, then not all will be changed, if you think of that kind of in logical terms. This seems to have almost been the assumption that he was addressing, or at least a potential concern. And Paul faces this head-on with his statement, not all sleep, but all will be changed. In fact, there's going to be two categories of people, some that are sleeping, some that have died, some that are not sleeping, some that are still alive. But both of those categories fall in the all, but all will be changed. There is a certain essential transformation that awaits both the living and the dead who are in Christ. And in order to do this, Paul describes two modes of transformation depending on the state at Christ's return. For the sleeping or the the saint who has died, he says that by resurrection, they get an imperishable body. And for the living saint, by immediate transformation of their living bodies to be imperishable. Notice how he points out in verse 52, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that we is referring to those who are still alive, will be changed. Paul provides insight here in kind of describing the timeline of what's happening. And he'll talk about both the duration and the timing of this transformation. First of all, it will happen instantaneously, which is speaking to its duration. And he uses two descriptive phrases to talk about 
that timing or that duration. The first is in a moment, the second in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll consider those in order. And the word translated in a moment is atamo, which sounds almost like a superhero, but it's basically where we get the word atomic. For those who remember their high school science class, what is an atom in the classical model of physics? Does anyone remember? I'm going to try not to geek out too much here, but because I certainly wouldn't do that. But the ancient Greeks coined the term atom to describe the smallest constituent unit of matter, literally that which cannot be cut. So if you start at a loaf of bread and you cut it in half and you keep cutting smaller and smaller, the smallest you can get, according to the Greek mindset, was the atom. Beyond that, it's no longer a unit of matter. Basically, the smallest unit of matter, repeating myself, gets to be called an atom. And later it was discovered, unfortunately, that atoms are actually made of still smaller pieces called subatomic particles. But we'll ignore that for now. An atom describes still today the smallest unit of ordinary matter that has the properties of a chemical element. It's basically the smallest you cut it, that it can still be hydrogen or it can still be helium or it can still be gold or whatever, whatever element you're breaking down. So getting back to Paul's description of our transformation, he's describing it as taking place in an atom of time, something that is the smallest measurable unit of time. Basically, it will finish in an instant. Anything shorter would not be measurable as time. But he also describes it using this bodily description, in the twinkling of an eye, which most likely refers to a very rapid eye movement, like a darting glance out of the corner of one's eye. Again, it refers to the fastest physical phenomena that anyone could likely observe in that day without modern scientific equipment or high-speed cameras. I'm talking to you smartphones with your slow-motion effects. But in that day, that glance with an eye would have been basically an instant, instantaneous. Just as a brief application, rather than ever waiting for our transformation, we see here the revelation that we will be changed to an incorruptible, to a never-dying body for eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, and that is going to happen in an instant. What a hope-filling truth that is as we face the steady but slow and daily change into Christ's image in our current bodies in the already but not yet of that kingdom. One day, this good work, we know with confidence, this good work will be completed, not over centuries or millennia in heaven, but in an instant. Rest in that hope, even now as you progress onward in faith, during the here and now. And may even that hope motivate you to endure. In addition to referring to it as instantaneous, we're also told that it will happen at the last trumpet. So this is referring more to timing than to how long it's going to take. Trumpets in the Bible often refer to divine decrees or manifestations from God himself. Some examples are in Exodus 19, Zechariah 9, and 1 Thessalonians 4, covering examples from both Testaments. The trumpet militarily is also that which would awaken a sleeping army as a signal of what's to come, announcing a change of their status. As an apocalyptic device, the trumpet often announces a new beginning, 
that's been decreed by God. Revelation 11 is an example of that type of a use. So the last trumpet here is likely not referring to last as in a series of multiple trumpets, like the fifth out of five trumpets, for example, but last as in the final end times trumpet, the passing of the present reality. It could even refer to the sound of triumph that is played when the battle is over, marking the fullness of the victory being received. And the third one I have for how it will occur is it will happen, it will occur with the resurrection. I believe this is speaking to the relative timing of how this is going to happen. Paul doesn't seem to be describing two distinct events or two separate instants here, one for the living and one for the dead. But it seems, at least from this text, like one event with different paths leading to the same outcome. It's like your GPS navigation giving you two different routes to go somewhere, but both of them are going to get you to the same place and they're going to get you there at the same time. In the programming world, maybe it's like two separate paths through the code that end up pointing to the same memory address. So, like two sides of a coin, sorry, yes, another analogy, transformation and resurrection in Paul's mind appear to be part of the same event. He uses the conjunction and to separate the sound of the trumpet, the dead raised imperishable, and we being changed. But they happen together, or at least that's my understanding of the text. So Paul is going to return one last time in verse 53 to this essential nature of the transformation that he started in verse 50. He uses the word we see in our translation as must. Let's read that verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This is communicating an absolute necessity. It's the same word used about Jesus in Matthew 16:21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and raised on the third day. And in a similar way, we must experience the transformation of our bodies. Again, there are two parallel thoughts being expressed. First, there's the perishable becoming imperishable. And then there's the other lane, the other track, the mortal becoming immortal. To be imperishable means lacking the capacity to break down or to decay. And the word used for immortal is more than just saying without dying, but literally the inability to die. Neither death or decay will hold any power to our resurrected in our transformed bodies. And these are hope-giving truths about what we will be able to experience in that instant, but then for all eternity to follow. One of the early church fathers, Ambrose, captured the positive nature of being released from our current state when he wrote this. The blossom of the resurrection is these. He's writing about this text. What is richer? Here is the manifold fruit the harvest, whereby man's nature grows more vigorous and productive after death. The way Paul describes this event is as putting on the new nature of now being imperishable and now being immortal. Some translations even use must be clothed with. This perishable body must be clothed with the imperishable. This further highlights that we're not getting, we're not getting our current physical selves stripped away as much as we're being clothed in new bodies. 
This also means we're not resurrected like 21st century TV zombies to live as undead hosts of still decaying bodies. No, instead, we are getting new bodies. And the picture here from Paul is that we put them on, but we're still the same person. One illustration of this that I thought of is space travel. Now, I haven't actually been to space. Anyone been to space? That would be cool. But I know that due to the lack of atmosphere, the extremes in temperature and pressure alone would be immediately fatal if I were to go for a spacewalk, like in what I'm wearing today. Instead, I would need to clothe myself in a special spacesuit that would fit me for the world of interplanetary space, something that can help to regulate my body temperature, to maintain atmospheric pressure, and to provide oxygen. And I don't need to take off my current skin in order to get in that spacesuit, or I don't need to change my identity in any way. In a related way, I think, we are clothed in our transformed resurrection bodies in order to be fit for an eternity without death and without decay and without any of sin's other effects on us. I find this really helpful since it shows or it illustrates that we don't become different people after the resurrection. The transformation changes the nature of our bodies and that they will not die or decay, but it doesn't change who we are even now as embodied souls made in God's image to show forth his glory. Here is what G.K. Beale, in his book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, had to say about this change that's described in these verses. The following discussion of believers being changed because they will put on the incorruptible is a further elaboration of being transformed into the image of the imperishable last Adam. The clothing image probably begins in verse 49, he thinks, where the notion of bearing the image really connotes wearing the image much as one would wear a coat of arms or a badge. The discussion of Christ and his people coming to be in the end-time image of God through resurrection is another way to speak of new creation, since the new creation will be an incorruptible and an imperishable state. The fallen image of the first Adam is rectified through the resurrection of Christ. And in fact, Christ does not merely regain the fallen image of God in Adam, but he restores it to an eschatological stage beyond which the first Adam experienced. Because the first Adam was corruptible. He did experience death. But this new Adam, this new creation because of Christ's resurrection is in a stage beyond which even Adam experienced in his pre-fallen state in the garden. So that's a bit big. That's a bit weighty. Let me try to think through some applications with us. How do we apply this truth of the necessity of our transformation? Some questions maybe to ask to to tease this out a bit. How does the truth of the future transformation for the believer, the final removal of all of sin's effects on us, how does that change our daily growth in grace now? Does seeing your present sanctification through the lens of a future resurrected life increase your hope, perhaps, that God is actively working in and changing you now? Have you been neglecting any of the primary means that God provides for your growth in grace? These means are the word and prayer and fellowship, the Lord's table and baptism. 
Have you been possibly even neglecting these due to some discouragement or dismay in the process of growth? And what might real change look like going forward from here today? I pray that this would be hope-giving to see the future final transformation that God will accomplish as being something that his work in you right now is even propelling you toward. I pray that he continues that work in us. So let's move to the second point. Paul distinctly changes his language between verses 53 and 54. It's almost like he ended his argument trying to convince people, and now he's moving to speaking of it as an absolute certainty, which propels him into a doxology, a hymn of praise. So these are no longer something that must happen, but he starts talking about when they do happen. So from Paul's inspired perspective, the triumph is certain. This will cover up until the next to last verse of our chapter. Paul continues verse 54 by pretty much repeating word for word what he said in the prior verse. But he's so sure of it occurring that he points out when it happens, it will be fulfilling God's promise in Scripture. If you put verse 53 and 54, I should have done it on the slide, but if you put them side by side, he basically goes from talking about for this perishable body must put on the imperishable to in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And so he talks about when this happens, this is what it's going to be like, and it's fulfilling what God has already promised will happen. So when this happens, it means something about God keeping every word that he's already spoken. And Paul goes on to use two Old Testament verses, which we'll look at now. The first, actually let me read that. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So his first reference is to death being swallowed up in victory. And here Paul has turned to proclaiming the ramifications of resurrection in the defeat of death. He does so by using a portion of Isaiah chapter 25. And he quotes from verse 8 specifically, but I'd actually like to read starting in verse 6 through verse 9 to give us a little bit of the local context. We read in Isaiah 25, On this mountain... This is God describing, or Isaiah describing prophetically God's renewed kingdom. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The reference to death being swallowed up forever is particularly significant in light of the resurrection and being clothed in our new and undying bodies. And the way the, the Old Testament text reads forever, this forever aspect of being death-free 
in Isaiah's prophecy, Paul refers to as victory. This is the final victory over sin, over death, and over the adversary. This is the victory that was promised to the serpent back in Genesis 3, often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when Christ died on the cross, he effectively stood on the head of the serpent and delivered the finishing blow. And by rising from the dead, he showed his victorious power over sin and over death and that we too would also know that power in our own resurrection. Paul has another passage that he'll quote from in the book of the 12 or in the minor prophets. Hosea 13. And here he's using a reference from verse 14, but let me start in verse 12 of that chapter. He's writing a series of rhetorical questions that act as calls for death to take its spoils of those who would be judged from the tribe of Ephraim. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. You notice in Hosea, it's not a triumphant note. It is a peal of judgment for Ephraim's sin. And even those questions are are truly calling on death to come. But Paul turns these declarations of judgment on their head when he quotes them in light of resurrection truth. Now they are taunts used against the personification of death, treating that death like a schoolyard bully who has finally met his day of reckoning and now is powerless to hold any more power over others. Death, too, has reached its end in Paul's forward-looking and faith-filled sight beyond the grave. And thus, one of the most hope-giving texts, that's why we hear this text read at, at funerals of believers, because we stand at the graveside and we mourn the ravages of death and of decay. By extension, we're mourning what sin has done to our world and to those we love. But we also look ahead. We look ahead to the not quite yet of Christ's inaugurated kingdom and we join Paul through Isaiah's words in taunting at death, recognizing its power is limited and it's nearing a final day when it will be victoriously defeated once and for all. So both passages that Paul quotes are interpreted by Paul through this this perspective of resurrection What questions had previously pointed to judgment in Hosea, Carson said, now sneer defiantly at death's impotence in the face of God's powerful act of mercy and forgiveness in Christ. I love that. The text is going to continue with Paul making two profound theological statements. And from these, he's going to erupt immediately into doxology which is basically a hymn of praise to God. Jump to that. 
All truths of God should lead us to doxology. All truths about God should lead us to rightfully praising the one who has revealed himself. If we drink deeply from God's revelation and see him for who he truly is, grateful praise is the inevitable outcome for the child of God. And may this text continue to take us there today. The first theological statement that Paul makes is at the beginning of verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. What Paul appears to be tapping into with this statement is what he's going to expand on further in some of his other letters. Like in his letter to the Romans, he spends a few chapters talking about the relationship between sin and death, the wages of sin being death. And he'll talk about the law and its interactions with these, which comes up in his next statement. Also in Galatians chapter 3, he brings us this relationship and brings in the law. The word used for sting here, the sting of death, could either be a sharp iron tool like a goad that would have been used by cattle drovers or probably more likely refers to the sting or the bite of venomous animal or an insect. Think of like the deadly sting from a scorpion's tail. I'm really glad we don't live where scorpions are. Those things scare me. But by turning us away from God, sin has turned death into a deadly poison causing it to hurt and to kill like a sting would. And according to this previous verse, O death, where is your sting? Death's sting has now been removed. And this brief theological statement points out how it lost its potency. It's because the victory accomplished by resurrection freed us from sin's clutches. Having been previously dead to sin, we are now alive to God. I don't think I have it on a slide, but... If you would even turn to Romans 6, and I'll read starting in verse 5. There's a great text for understanding this relationship between sin and death. Romans 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those who have put themselves in right relationship to God by faith in Christ's promised and fulfilled redemption can consider themselves as freed from the power of death. And due to the unholy alliance between sin and death, its poisonous rule is broken for us as well. And his second statement is going to follow and build on the first where he says, and the power of sin is the law. And here Paul draws on the nature of the law, I think for the first time in this letter, meaning he has probably already taught this. Remember, he spent a year and a half in face-to-face personal ministry with the Corinthians. So it's probably something he has already taught them, and this is just being used as a reminder. But he goes into this more extensively in some of his other letters. This isn't an argument that the law is bad. Paul calls it holy and good in Romans 7. 
And also, the law was designed to bring life to God's people. But in the context of our fallenness, in the context of our sin and bondage to it, we see the law as that which accuses us, the law which declares us to be lawbreakers. And being unable to completely obey the law ourselves, we find ourselves under its curse and its condemnation, in need of a sinless Redeemer who kept it all. If we look at Galatians 3 now, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, I'm not going to completely exegete that text, but ultimately the law shows us as lawbreakers under sin's power, which is the sting of death that we inherited from the first father, Adam. But by completely satisfying the law's righteous demands and by taking on the curse of our breaking it on himself, Jesus Christ, the third person of the Godhead, established in himself a new relationship with God that is apart from the law. These are deep waters to tread, but such rich theology here for sinners like us, that Christ would take on himself the curse that we deserve for breaking the law because he had kept it fully. And that in turn, he would give us his perfect righteousness as the only one who could do that and justify us before the Father. So Paul doesn't go into a lot of explanation here. He has a couple brief statements about the nature of sin, death, and the law. And then he goes immediately from there into his doxology. This is an act of sheer exaltation from Paul. Think of like jumping for joy or falling to the ground in happy tears of thanksgiving. Standing against the death, sin, and the law is victory received through Jesus' resurrection. And the triumph is certain. It's certain, brothers and sisters, this, this victory has already been accomplished because Christ is already raised. Paul has no doubt in his mind the victory was and is being given to all who follow Jesus. Thistleton writes this, Even if the last resurrection is still future, the basis of the victory is a present gift, providing grounds for present exaltation and thanksgiving. It is not a mere presence of future certainty about resurrection. It also expresses the present gift of grace to believers, for whom the destructive potential of sin, the law, and death as a terrifying prospect has now been broken. The present reality right now is that the sting of death has been drawn out by Christ's victory. So this closing note of Paul's extended chapter on the certainty of resurrection ends on this note of joyful celebration. He has won the victory, and then he has given it to us. What grace! So we thank him with our lips and with our lives. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now I originally was only going to have two points in my message. I wasn't going to skip the last verse, but I was going to treat that kind of as an addendum to the chapter. But instead, we're going to see it as the motivation, the, the thing that everything has been driving toward. And he uses the word therefore to start that final verse. Really the word therefore, which the old adage you've probably heard is when you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. If you haven't heard that before, it's, it's a good one to remember. It's not a meaningless word in scripture. It usually is connecting some, some truth, some doctrine, some promise of God to what the writer is then going to instruct us to do or how we're to respond in light of that. So this is critical. This therefore points us back to everything that Paul has just said as the basis for what he's going to exhort us toward. So the final point is, therefore, we persevere. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Out of all the indicatives, which is just a, a fancy $10 word for promises, for gospel truths, out of all the indicatives that have been piling up in this chapter of our future resurrection hope, out of those come the imperatives, the commands, the exhortations of this closing verse. These imperatives are a call to steadfastness, to immovableness, and to aboundingness. And I may have made up some of those words, but the point should be clear. All of the truth of these recent weeks about Christ's resurrection and how we will be raised and why we need to be raised, what transformation and victory comes with our resurrection, all of this comes to its culmination with how these truths should motivate us to live. And Paul again starts, as I mentioned he would, with his familial relationship and referring to the reader, to the listener as brother. This time even including this modifying word, beloved brothers. This offers a double emphasis on the bonds of affection that he has toward them. And while the pronoun appears gender exclusive, Paul is most certainly including all of those men and women who follow Christ and are thus recipients of the command. This is not, though, for those outside of Christ who need first to be planted in the gospel before they can be steadfast in it. But once planted in the gospel, though, the call is to endure and live in that truth in light of the resurrection. So I'll talk about a few aspects of that perseverance. The first has to do with being rooted deeply in the gospel. Paul's instruction that he actually uses two words to describe is to be steadfast and to be immovable. The word steadfast is in adjective form but comes from a noun that describes a seat or a base. So it refers to being well-seated and solidly based, firm in purpose and not given to fluctuation or going off course. And the second word, immovable, is similar, but it emphasizes more the lack of movement. It comes from a Greek word where we get the, our word kinetic, basically without change of status or of location. So together these words draw our attention back to the beginning of the chapter, where if you recall, or if you don't, I'll read from verse 1 and 2. 
Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now, I checked, and there are actually different Greek words being used, but I believe the concept is carrying from what he said earlier. Our perseverance is ultimately rooted in remembering and drawing life from truths of Jesus' work for us. From being planted in the good news of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Not as an abstract theological concept. Not as a prayer we prayed once when we were younger and we forgot about. But as true for us today and now. The day we begin treating our need for Jesus and his gracious work of redemption as old hat or as elementary truths that we can, we can forget about. They were forgetting into the kingdom. I believe the day we begin treating them that way, we're already in danger of falling away, of failing to persevere. We must continually increase in our gospel understanding, in our grasp of how it impacts our daily lives. We need to be reminding each other of these truths. We need to be teaching them and preaching them back to ourselves day by day, studying them for ourselves, rehearsing them out loud to our family members, our brothers and sisters, both what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to, and then living in thankful response to God for that work. A few questions, maybe to try to draw out some applications here. What are some ways that you are currently growing in appreciation for and understanding of the gospel? And I'd like you to really think currently, not I read a book five years ago and it really drew out gospel truth and, and it was so exciting, but lately not so much. Are there ways that you're currently growing in your appreciation for and understanding of the gospel? I really think this is a lifelong endeavor for the child of God? Do you have patterns and practices in place to help you keep standing firmly in these truths? And how might community groups, coffee meetings, Bible or book studies, and other formal or informal settings of church life better set your roots into Christ's finished work and its implications? How do you build this into the routines and the patterns of your life? How do we build this collectively into our patterns as a church? Like us to think about those questions and even maybe discuss them in your community groups this week or in your families. And the second aspect of our perseverance comes about in our ongoing work for God as we excel in Christian service. Not work to get God's favor, not work to do penance for our sins or work to save us or make us look better in the eyes of others. But Christian work that comes from a heart that's already been changed by God's saving work is both reflecting on the gospel and on resurrection truths and then wants to live that out in our daily lives. So this certainly would include formal church-type work, things like teaching a class, things like serving the body in the nursery or in other ministries, Nothing in the text seems to limit it to that at all. In fact, it probably means more how we spend our days vocationally, how we spend our days with our families, our time in our local communities, 
And what does our work look like there? Are we doing that for ourselves or for God? There's not time to go much into this, but everything we do as Christians ought to be shaped by the work that God has done in our hearts. Making it, making everything we do inherently Christian. I believe we're not to draw strict lines between work that is considered sacred and that which would be termed secular. That's something I don't think we see in Scripture. All of creation and all creative work we do that God includes us in, he gives us our abilities. He gives us our responsibilities. He gives us the strength in which to do them. So in light of that, all our work can and should be to the Lord. He says we're to abound in the work of the Lord. Seeing our daily work, whatever it is, be it in a home or an office, in the marketplace or in the fields, in the warehouse, in a coffee shop. I probably left out some. We see it as God's work and holding our hands openly for him to direct us to do that work for his glory. I believe this is how we abound in the work of the Lord. We let kingdom purposes shape our actions and our attitudes. The words we say may even be about earthly things like spreadsheets, but they speak of heavenly values and where we're setting our hope. I hear echoes of, of verse 10 of chapter 15 here, where Paul says, By God's grace I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Paul recognizes that the presence of God's grace doesn't negate his own activity, his own work, but it fuels, it empowers it. And so it is as we seek to perform the good works that God has already prepared for us. We don't want to do it in our own strength. We don't want to do it to our own praise, but out of what he provides and to his glory. And I love Paul's use of the words always and abounding. They refer to, kind of intimidatingly, but an ongoing a perpetual state of excelling in what God has put in our hands to do. It could literally read, continually overflowing at the brim on all sides in the work of the Lord. Continually overflowing at the brim on all sides in the work of the Lord. Speaks of an abundance out of which we live in relation to God and others. And again, motivated by, because of the victory of resurrection. And how do we do that? How do we live that way? We recognize that we are not yet fully transformed as we will be when we receive our new bodies. But because we live in hope of our new selves, our new transformed selves, and are on the way to that, we can see perhaps to some degree a trajectory toward it. We can then spend and be spent without limit for God. This is all out of recognition that it's in a response to his overflowing grace that produces these effects in our heart. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We know then that nothing is lost. This is the antithesis or antithesis of verses 14 through 19, where Paul was talking about if Christ has not been raised, then basically everything we've done is worthless. Our faith is in vain. And we're to be pitied because of all that we put into it. But drawing instead on this idea that our labor is not in vain. Because of everything said in this chapter, 
because of the truth of the victory of the final resurrection, Paul says all of it is going to be worth it. Every work for Christ, nothing will be wasted. And we demonstrate our confidence in these truths, our confidence in the resurrection hope by abounding in God's work, whatever that is that he gives us to do. We'll briefly seek to apply this and then I'll close. What are some avenues of service for which you can thank God today for making you to abound in his work? I'm not asking you to think of what what more could I do? I want you to think first of what is God already doing in you that you can point to this is God helping me to abound in the work of the Lord. And then how might you start to think differently about the day-to-day things you do, everything you do as part of its work, his work, and see it as permanent. See it as that which is not in vain. Would that change how you do your daily tasks? What would that change about your focus in doing those things? To see them as part of the work of the Lord and as that which is not wasted. So therefore, we persevere. Therefore, we suffer. Therefore, we live in light of all God has done for us in Christ and in light of the hope of the resurrection. These gospel realities, the assurance that nothing is wasted that we do for Christ, may God give us grace to hear and respond to the Spirit as he works. And I know we've considered much today. There's quite a bit of ground we covered. But I pray that it all comes clearly from this text and revolves around this big idea that we started with in which I'll repeat as we close and move into singing his praise. Motivated by the certainty of our bodily transformation through Christ's victory over sin and death, we enter into grateful praise, endure in gospel truth, and excel in Christian service. Let's pray that God does this work in us. Father, we need you to do any of this. We need you to keep us persevering. We need you to root us in truths of Jesus' work for us, to point us to your word, to community and with our brothers and sisters, to show us how our daily acts of service, even the routine and the menial, are so significant as part of your work. Show us this, we pray. And help it to be motivated out of confidence that we will be changed and the victory that accomplishes that has already been won by Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.